My name is John Sapika, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Zionsville Fellowship. It's so good to see so many of you face-to-face or eye-to-eye this morning. And for those of you who are joining online, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, for the children with us right now who are here with me or who are watching, I encourage you to continue to draw and take notes, take pictures of what you hear from the Bible this morning. We have a few pictures up on the screen behind me from last week's message by Pastor Eric on peace. Uh, Eli Nass and Audrey Bobbitt had two pictures from last week's message, and I'm grateful for uh, God's Word, how it speaks to all of us, whether we're young or old. So, I encourage whether you are a child or a child at heart to continue to take notes and listen intently to God's Word. This morning, we continue our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. When talking with my wife, Emily, this past week, she asked me what fruit I was preaching on. And I said, well, um, it's not exactly an area of personal strength. So Emily was intrigued and started to do what anyone does, and she sang the song to kind of remind, okay, what, what fruit are we on? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And she looked at me and gave me a look. Oh boy. So needless to say, I don't always get to preach on the parts of the Bible that I most enjoy or I most embody but I'm grateful for the entirety of Scripture in the ways that it encourages my heart and exposes my heart. So let's look together now to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and we'll eagerly expect to hear from God as He encourages our hearts and as He exposes our hearts. So follow along with me as I read from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray together and ask God to expose and encourage our hearts as we look to his precious word together. Father, if your spirit does not come and cause us to marvel and delight in these truths in your word this morning, then my words are frankly worthless. 
So, Father, would you encourage us, challenge us, refresh us by your word this morning. You know our hearts. You know our life circumstances. You know our burdens and our joys and our weaknesses. And so we look to you for words of life and hope. Help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are now several weeks into the sermon series on gospel freedom and the fruit of the Spirit. We need to remember two foundational realities essential to understanding what these fruits are about and how they work. So first, the fruit of the Spirit, being joyful, being loving, being peace-filled, being patient— This is not the result of mere human efforts to change behavior and attitudes. These are God-produced fruits that we bear only because God has breathed life into our previously dead hearts because we've repented and trusted in Jesus. So secondly, these God-birthed fruits are in direct contrast with the works of the flesh. In other words, bearing spiritual fruits— consists of way more than simply fighting our, our sinful flesh. It also includes producing positive, spirit-wrought fruit that are categorically different thoughts, feelings, and actions. So what sort of spiritual fruit does James, the brother of Jesus, call us to bear? This morning in chapter 5, he calls us to be patient. He provides three descriptions of what patience looks like in action. So in essence, James says to us today, Christian, be patient, wait, and work hard. Christian, be patient, be strengthened, and give grace. Christian, be patient, model, and emulate this precious fruit. So first, what does it look like for a Christian to be patient? We must wait, and we must work hard while we wait. This will be clear as we look back at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So look, follow, listen along as I read from verses 1 through 7. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, even murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. James calls the Christians who are facing intense persecution from rich pagans to be patient, to wait until the coming of the Lord, to work hard just like a farmer while they wait. Such patience relates to the amount of time or the amount of difficulty you face before you shift from an appropriate response to that situation to an inappropriate response to that situation. And James gives really frank, difficult warnings to the rich mentioned here. I would be a fool to disregard the the warnings this morning because I look around me 
And the majority of the people in this room listening right now, we are among the richest 10% of the world. Many of us live right now in one of the most affluent cities in all of Indiana. And we live in one of the most prosperous nations in all of human history. So if we don't hear at least a little bit of ourselves in the rebuke against the rich, we are mistaken. And yet, these warnings are specifically for the rich who abuse their affluence and influence, who take advantage of their laborers, who pursue lives of incredible self-indulgence at the expense of others. So if that describes you in any way, shape, or form this morning, repent. There is still forgiveness for you at the cross of Christ. And for those of us who faithfully and sacrificially steward our God-given resources for the good of countless others, James's warning gives us fresh caution to take seriously the, the call to be generous. But most of all, we look at verses 1 through 6 this morning not to be slapped on the wrist, but to recognize the context in which James calls these Christians to be patient. Now, being patient is rarely easy and frequently difficult, whether with a fitful baby or an impossible co-worker or children with a cranky sibling. Kids, it can be hard to be patient, right? But the challenge of being patient in particular situations does not invalidate or nullify the command to be patient. In fact, the difficulty of keeping any biblical command never invalidates such a command. In this case, Christians are being called to be patient in the face of extreme trials and injustice. The rich landowners have essentially extorted, cheated, and defrauded these Christian workers. The rich landowners have selfishly hoarded, hoarded their wealth, indulged in its benefits. They revel in their possessions as their poor workers cry out for justice and mercy and a little bit of money. And given that James metaphorically says that the rich landowners have condemned, even murdered the righteous person, they have very likely taken this, the poor workers to court, legally stripping them of their land and their source of income. By doing so, the rich effectively condemn the poor to perpetual poverty and perhaps even to starvation. In this incredibly unjust situation, James calls the Christians to rise up and rebel? No, to patience. To wait and look forward to the return of the Lord. To work hard as they wait, like a farmer desperately waits for rain. James calls these exploited Christians to patient, persevering endurance until Christ's return. This long view of suffering serves as one barrier to a ditch, lest we begin to think that all suffering and all injustice will find perfect, complete resolution in this lifetime. I have a dear friend who likes to say that he is a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. He often admits that he doesn't know what the next moment holds in his life, whether he'll receive a hard health diagnosis, whether he'll experience a, a car wreck or some other unexpected tragedy. He is quite pessimistic indeed. And yet he has a deep contentment knowing that the remainder of his earthly life remains in the hands of King Jesus, who gladly laid down his life on the cross 
that we would have life and joy and peace in him now. My friend also has deep confidence in knowing that the entirety of his future life, his eternal life, rests secure in this same King Jesus, in the hands of Jesus, who rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin, suffering, and death. On the one hand, we are called to suffer silently, without retaliation, patiently, like Jesus, trusting that God himself sees our affliction and cares for our suffering. On the other hand, James calls these exploited Christians to active preparation, lest we think that being patient is merely a call to grin and bear it. The farmer does not sit back and relax between the early and the late rains. Yes, he he patiently waits for the Lord for provision of the rain, but he continues to work day by day, moment by moment, until the Lord provides the much-needed rain. This will make his crops grow. In this way, patience is not passive. In our passage, patience refuses to cynically submit to the reality of the abuses of power and authority and affluence by the rich. Instead, patience actually includes a call to action, an active preparation for God to come and work even now. In this historical context, the call to patience would almost certainly include denouncing this unjust treatment and pursuing fair treatment, thus the reference to the prophets later in the text. This daily temporal view of suffering is the other barrier to a ditch, lest we fall prey to a cynical view of reality. All of life is not only suffering. We do not need to resign to a fatalistic outlook on the seeming inevitability of injustices, whether local or global. We live in a fallen, sin-ravaged world, and yet Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God in his life, death, and resurrection. Our nation's current conversations on the hot topic of racism calls for this kind of spirit-given patience that's keenly aware of both of these realities. Injustices will always exist until Christ returns. And yet, Christians are uniquely called and equipped to find resolutions to true injustices. Most of all, we know of the greatest resolution of all, of Christ and his cross. The the cross shouts of the scandalous resolution between man's unjust rebellion against God and God's holy hatred for sin. Now, there's a great deal of gray area between these two boundaries, and this requires Herculean amounts of wisdom to navigate them well. We don't seek vengeance. We patiently entrust that to the Lord. We do not disregard injustices. We patiently look to God for wisdom and strength to make God-honoring change. These are complex matters. Some of us will lean toward different emphases. What is needed is some patience, the kind of patience that waits and acts. Christian, be patient, wait, and work hard as you wait patiently. James continues beyond verse 7, saying, Christian, be patient, be strengthened, and give grace to one another. Look here at verse uh, verse 8. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
James repeats the call for these suffering Christians to be patient in the midst of their afflictions. Christian, be patient. Be strengthened. Give grace to one another. In calling for patience, James also gives even more practical guidance as to what patience should look like and what it doesn't look like. Patience looks like being strengthened and not grumbling. The call to establish your heart is an idiom. It's a phrase with distinct emphasis and meaning. This phrase includes a call to take courage that comes from a deep trust in the Lord. This is a bold summons for Christians to lean into the safe harbor of the gospel in the midst of the myriad temptations and struggles that come during the storm of suffering and trials. Personally, I've found that the past several months have been, frankly, disorienting, challenging, discouraging. The recipe for a 2020 cocktail has included one part drastic societal change from a pandemic, two parts complex dynamics because of cultural unrest related to racism, add in a few too many teaspoons of unhelpful responses and proposed solutions to these situations, and then you shake it and you stir it a bit with all of the normal trials we face in living in a fallen world. And what do we have? We have a recipe for discouragement. If you're like me, your heart quickly begins to drift off course, away from the North Star, perhaps even especially so in the midst of these trials. But the nearness and the certainty of Christ's return serves for us as a rock-solid anchor for us, as the waves of doubt and uncertainty and disappointment and discouragement crash upon us. Now, what specifically is it about Jesus' return that should cause us to take fresh courage and confidence in God, that should help us to be patient with one another? Unfortunately, there's a strong subculture within Christianity that has so emphasized the least important parts of this doctrine that we've become disproportionately focused on tertiary matters, such as the timing and manner of Christ's return. It matters, but it's, it's tertiary. It's not the main thing. We've traded the filet mignon of this doctrine for a side of green beans. So the sure reality and the nearness of Jesus' return is actually a precious promise for us today. In the face of suffering, Jesus' return gives us an assurance of deliverance. If not now, it's guaranteed at his return or at our death. In the face of injustice, Jesus gives us an assurance of justice. If not now, at his return or our death. Whenever we experience wrongdoing or even when we sin against others, the nearness, the certainty of Jesus' return prods us to seek reconciliation quickly. He will be back soon. So let's repent quickly. Or let's be quick to forgive one another when they repent. So Christian, are you worn down by this pandemic? Are you discouraged? Establish your heart. Jesus' return is near. Are you concerned or frustrated by the rising tensions within our nation as a whole? Or perhaps within your network of relationships with your family? Establish your heart. Jesus' return is near. Are you unsure how to navigate all of these dynamics? 
Establish your heart. Jesus' return is near. We don't know the day of Jesus' return, but we have absolute confidence he will come back. He will make everything sad untrue. This is the reality of all of our futures, whether in our lifetime, in a future generation. This reality empowers us to take heart, to be strengthened as we wait in the face of suffering. Short-term pessimism, long-term optimism. Children, if you have not experienced great suffering in your life or great sadness in your life, that's okay. You're young. Life is full of much joy, much play, much laughter. But you can and you should begin to prepare your heart now for future trials because we live in a fallen world. They will come. And the call to follow Jesus is a costly call. The call to follow Jesus is a call to take up your cross, to die to yourself each day. This glorious and hard life is worth it, but it's costly. This is not a hidden surprise. This is part of following Jesus. So children, he is worth it. Adults, he's worth it. All of that said, the realist as me is really thankful that James doesn't stop at verse 8, that he continues into verse 9, because James easily could have moved on from simply commanding patience to giving examples of patience. But instead, he highlights one particular temptation that's common for me and perhaps for you when we face suffering, the temptation to grumble. Look at verse 9 again with me. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In verse 9, James also commands these suffering Christians to not grumble against one another, especially in light of Jesus' imminent or soon return. He does so because there are certain sins that become particularly tempting in the face of trials and suffering. This especially includes the sin of grumbling. Now, what exactly do you think those Christians were prone to grumble about back then? Maybe those Christians took their frustrations from their landlords out on one another. Maybe those Christians disagreed with each other about how to respond to their situation, to their oppression, and they formed different camps, and they would lob accusations at each other because they disagreed about how to respond. Or maybe Christians wanted to blame each other for their current sufferings, seeking comfort by identifying someone else as the source of their problem. No matter what prompted the grumblings, the command is clear. Be patient with one another and don't grumble. Respond appropriately to each other in the midst of this difficulty. In spite of the real abuses these Christians experienced and endured, they are not called to grumble, especially not against each other. Those Christians really don't sound that different from us today, do they? We're tempted to take our frustrations out on each other. Whether you're a male or female, single or married, young or old, we are tempted to grumble against one another, to keep a long list of wrongs that are done to us, let them stew inside of us, in our minds and our hearts. And let them spew out an accusation and gossip against others. Men, do you ever have hard days at work? Well, why don't you just come home really worn down? Let your coldness be known to everyone in the house. 
and immediately show your grouchiness. Barely engage with your spouse or your children. This is a time-tested recipe for success. Women, perhaps you have a hard day at work sometimes as well, or with the kids, or the grandkids. This is a great opportunity for you to air all of your grievances against everyone who's wronged you, and then even to gossip about their wrongs. Even better, find some fresh grievances against your loved ones. Now, children, when you have a hard day at school or you face an unexpected trial or difficulty, you could hold some grudges against your parents or maybe even better, blame it on your sibling because that always works really well when they mildly irritate you, right? So this sounds ridiculous when we put it so bluntly, right? Our words hold the power of life and death. Earlier in his letter, James warns us of the challenge to wield our tongues well. Our speech matters immensely. It directly reflects the health of our spiritual being. It's always easier to call others to patience than to actually be patient ourselves. The impulsiveness of impatience is always lurking. So, brothers, sisters, resolve now in light of the reality of Jesus's return and the reality of final judgment where every thought, every feeling, and every action will be exposed. And resolve now to respond differently tomorrow by God's grace. Resolve to give grace instead of grief. Resolve to hope for the best in others rather than giving in to grumbling. Last James continues to call the afflicted Christians to be patient. To be patient and model and emulate the fruit of patience. Look at me with verses 10 and 11 in James chapter 5. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James calls Christians to model patience and to emulate others who have modeled patience. Sobering for me, especially as I'm not particularly gifted at patience. The examples given by James, however, are slightly surprising and even encouraging. What does James say patience looks like? What's the example of patient suffering that James considers worthy of imitation? It looks like the Old Testament prophets who boldly spoke in the name of the Lord, who faithfully and patiently called Israel to repentance time and time again, who tenderly and gently and sacrificially shepherded Israel, who frequently and graciously pled with Israel to return to the Lord, to turn away from idols, who fearlessly confronted injustices. And in doing so, they became the prophets who were attacked, assaulted, slandered, imprisoned, even killed. They were largely doubted, despised, disregarded, both by pagan kings and nations and by Israel, their own people. So this call to emulate or imitate the example of the Old Testament prophets is sobering, but not necessarily surprising. James began his letter by saying in verse 2 of chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. Trials and joy. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete or mature, lacking in nothing. James even says in verse 12, chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James reminds us that the call to follow Jesus is a costly call. The call to be patient in the face of trials and suffering will prove costly. Patiently holding your tongue when you are accused or when you are slandered, that's costly. Patiently waiting for deliverance or justice after being wronged, costly. Patiently bearing trials and suffering with self-restraint, costly. All of this kind of patience proves costly. Whether you are waiting for another Christian to repent of their sin against you, or if you're waiting for justice through the legal system, or if you're waiting final justice that only God can give at the final judgment, it's costly. Now, this does not mean that we need to pursue suffering for its own sake, but we can and we should marvel that God will use all things, including our suffering, for our good and for his glory. We marvel that God uses suffering to forge mature faith in his people. This does not minimize the sorrow and the pain, the anguish we feel in the midst of real trials. But this ammunition helps us fight the fight of faith to persevere through the trials. James gives us even more ammunition in this fight to bear the fruit of patience. In verse 11, he speaks of Job as steadfast. Now just Hear, hear this for a second. Job is worthy of imitation in his steadfast patience. This feels like someone is saying the equivalent of King David is worthy of imitation for his patience and not being angry and holding self-control in his anger. The man who murdered a man. This seems ridiculous. Job steadfast and patient in the face of suffering? Is this not the same Job who lobbed accusations at God in the midst of his suffering, who challenged God? And yet, to our great encouragement, brothers and sisters, Job is described as a man marked imminently by patience. He never gave up in the face of extreme suffering. He never cursed God. He ultimately stood firm despite the unraveling of his entire world. He clung to God through his great suffering. As one scholar says, the flame of his faith was never extinguished. After all, God intentionally permitted the satanic calamities to afflict Job so that we would all ultimately see God's mercy and God's compassion in Job's life. And it's true for you and for me today as well. We can look at Job's imperfect example of patience. We can aspire to imitate his life. Even more, we can be examples for one another, modeling what the fruit of patience looks like in our lives. I have been greatly encouraged recently by so many of you as I've seen you walk through real deep trials with real concrete faith in Jesus. Your model of patience gives me fresh joy, fresh hope, fresh courage to trust in Jesus myself. It helps me prepare for my future trials as well. So Christian, be patient, wait, 
and work hard as you wait. Christian, be patient, be strengthened, and give grace to one another. Christian, be patient, model, and emulate this essential, precious fruit of the Spirit. There is no more pressing time than right now for Christians to bear the fruit of the Spirit. For the sake of our public witness, for the sake of the spread of the gospel, for the sake of the unity of the church, all for the honor of King Jesus, not because these fruits earn our salvation, but because they demonstrate its reality in our lives. We desperately need God to help us crucify our fleshly hatred of the other of those who are not like us, who think differently from us, who look differently from us, who even vote differently from us. In its place, we need God's Spirit to empower us to love, to love sacrificiously, even if people are are sworn enemies. We desperately need God to help us crucify our fleshly, dissension-creating, envy-provoking, division-seeking tendencies. In its place, we need God's Spirit to fill our hearts with fresh, vibrant joy in Jesus. The kind of contagious joy that cannot help but overflow and spread into the hearts of others. We desperately need God to help us crucify our anger, anxiety, and unbelief that arise in the face of uncertainty. In its place, we need God's Spirit to empower us and overwhelm our hearts with a sense of God's peaceful presence. We desperately need God to help us crucify our fleshly grumbling, hastiness, and irritation that arise in the face of suffering and trials and inconvenience. In its place, we need God's Spirit to divinely empower us to patiently endure and persevere all major and minor obstacles that come our way. We desperately need God to help us. We need God to work patient, incremental growth in our hearts. We need a concoction of all of the fruits of the Spirit, a fruit cocktail, as you were, of divine caliber and quality, a synergistic mingling of spiritual fruits full of divine fragrance, divine flavor, divine potency, joyful love that stems from hearts of peace, that overflows and results and enable us to patiently wait whatever trials tomorrow brings, the mingling of these fruits working together in our lives, all so that we as Christians would imperfectly live transformed lives, echoing the example of Christ who perfectly embodied these fruits. And, brothers and sisters, as we fail to bear these fruits, let's quickly repent. Ask God the Father to forgive us on the very basis of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and inevitable return. And let us boldly ask the Father to transform our hearts, to empower us to be transformed. Has your heart been exposed this morning by God's word? Praise God. Run to Jesus. He is patient, compassionate, and merciful. He delights to give grace to repentant sinners. Are you sensing a greater need for God's Spirit to empower you moment by moment to actually bear these fruits and the fruit of patience in particular? Praise God. Cry out to Jesus. He delights to answer that prayer again and again. Are you sensing a deep lack of fruit in your life or perhaps even a complete absence of real spiritual life? Cry out to Jesus. 
He will breathe life into your dead heart. He delights to open the eyes of the blind and to raise the dead to life. Are you encouraged because you see the reality of the fruit of, the, of patience in yourself or in others, even if it's imperfect and infrequent? Sing out to Jesus with fresh joy and wonder. Encourage others with what you've seen. God delights to cultivate the fruit of patience in the heart of his people. Amen? Amen. So we will stand now together, and we're going to sing a prayer to God. And it'll be a prayer for God to richly cause us to bear these different spiritual fruits for his glory and our good.